Right, uh, we turn to Romans chapter 6, and um, if you find verse 14, and uh, it's this verse that is going to really form the, the basis of the new series that, that we're starting tonight, and Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, and it's just one part of it, and it's when Paul says these words, you are not under law, but under grace. And that's the title of this series, Law and Grace. And we're going to ask certain questions in regards to it, and there are four that we're going to answer as we go through the series. Now, the first question is this. We're not under law, but under grace. So firstly, what is this law that we're not under? And then secondly, why aren't we under it. And then the third question is, what is this grace that we are under? We're not under law, we're under grace. So what does that mean? What is this grace that we are under instead of law? And then fourthly, um, if we're not under law but under grace, is being under grace therefore a form of lawlessness? And they're the questions that we're going to be answering. And, and in effect, we're going to be seeing two errors that exist in the church. And it's the errors of legalism and license. Teachings that are wrong, and we're going to be going into them in some detail. Legalism and license. Now, these teachings are a bit like the wings of a plane. Alright, there's two of them and they're equal but different sides of the fence, as it were. And they can be extreme in form or they can be mild. Or think of it that you could be um, on either wing and you could be a long way out at the tip of the wing or just a tiny bit out on the wing. But the point is be it on either wing, to be on each of them at all is wrong. And we need to find the balance of being in the fuselage of the plane, where the passengers uh, fly safely. And of course the point is, any one person could be uh, completely on one wing, alright, um, but you could also be on one wing in some areas of life, but in other areas on the other wing. Um, and we've got to examine ourselves in regards to these things. Now then, legalism first, let's define it. And I'm going to define it like this. It's living the Christian life on the basis of law. Remember, we're not under law, we're under grace. And if you live the Christian life on the basis of law, that is the error of legalism, law legal. Now, the early church faced this uh, primarily from the Jewish converts, and they believed that all Christians, including the Gentiles, should be under all the rules and demands of the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. And if we just turn to Acts 15, we can actually see these characters. Acts chapter 15, 
<clears throat> and verse 1, and we read, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching them, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then down in verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So in effect, legalism, what it does is it creates the bondage of being required to submit to things, whatever they might be, um, that the Lord hasn't actually laid on you. It's requirements above and beyond what the Bible actually lays on us. Rules and regulations that have to be submitted to in order to be right with God that aren't from the direct teaching of the Bible. Um, and in effect, what the legalists were doing is they were getting the covenants mixed up. Let me just, just, just explain this. Go to, to John chapter 1. John and chapter 1, and we want verse 17. And we simply read this. John chapter 1 and verse 17. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now the law, Moses, was the old covenant. Jesus and his grace is the new one. So in effect, they got their covenants mixed up, alright. They were under the new covenant, but they were teaching that you also had to be under the old one. So the covenants were being mixed up by those people. There were Gentile versions of that as well. There were Gentiles who had various rules and regulations that didn't come from the Old Testament, but they say you've got to do this, that and the other. But regulations that weren't in any way outlined in the New Covenant. Um, and so you get Gentile versions of this as well. But the Judaizers were the main thrust in the church because obviously the church started off as uh, a Jewish affair. So we can define legalism therefore as <clears throat> any belief and teaching which requires submission to or observance of anything which is not actually laid down for us in the teaching of the Bible and which therefore suggests that you've got to be obeying those things in order to be right with God. And if you go to Galatians and chapter 5, um, and the key to understanding Galatians is that Paul is writing to a church where the Judaizers have got in and uh, what they're doing, you know, is they're saying, look, you Gentiles, you've got converted, but you've got to get circumcised. You've got to be obedient to the law of Moses. You've got to adhere to the old covenant. And uh, in Galatians 5 and verse 1, this is the stand that Paul takes in regards to this. 
and he says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery and in effect what he's saying there is that the old was slavery the mosaic law was slavery and you have been set free from it and as the series goes by we'll be actually um you know sort of seeing precisely why so there we've got legalism an error and we're going to see it in detail as we go through these talks and it's something that we've got to make sure that we aren't ourselves into in any way at all. Right, now then, the opposite of the error of legalism being under law rather than grace is the error of license. Or to give it its technical name, the false teaching of antinomianism. Now, antinomianism uh, comes from two Greek words which means which mean against the law. So we've got to, to find out what then is the error of license. Well, it's simply this, if the legalist gets covenants, old and new, mixed up, then these Christians consider themselves to be free of even the rules of the new covenant, all right? So the legalists mix up the covenants, old and new, want you to live under both, but the person into license doesn't even want to live according to the rules of the new covenant. They consider themselves, to whatever extent, free from even that. And uh, we saw that when Paul wrote about the legalists in Galatia, he says, you're free from all that. And uh, with people into license, freedom is kind of, you know, their watchword, all right? And uh, they see, they say, we're not under law, but under grace. But they see grace as kind of freedom, to whatever extent, um, from even that which the Bible does teach. Um, you know, and going against the Bible and being in sin is a very light thing to them. Um, it doesn't seem to matter too much to them. They say that everything is covered by grace, and indeed, that's true. But they take it one step further, and they say, carry on in sin. It doesn't matter, because, you know, you can, you know, sort of, you know, confess it, or even if you don't confess it, the grace of the Lord is there. And in effect, they're into a kind of, do what you like, because we're under grace and not law. And uh, so let's, let's actually, um, if you turn to Jude, let's see um, <coughs> the New Testament actually tackling this one head on because it is an error equally as is legalism. And in Jude, verse 4, and here Jude is warning about false teachers, only in this case it's not the Judaizers, the Judaizers these are the guys who are coming along saying, you know, it's not law, 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 it's all grace, 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 therefore do what you like. And we read this. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for being immoral. Now, there we have the Bible making it very clear uh, that we're not under law, uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean that we can be into 
license and just do what we want. Uh, go back to Galatians. Galatians in chapter 5, in verse 1, we saw Paul bashing legalism on the head. Uh, but now we want verse 13. Because, of course, the great danger is that in, 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 in staying free from error on one side, the pendulum can swing and you end up in error on the other side. And in verse 13, he says, you were called to be free, i.e. free from the law, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. So there you have it, being free from the law, being under grace, doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. We're not free to do as we like. Uh, go to Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, and find verse 15. And uh, in Romans, as we're going to see in future talks, Paul argues about, you know, where free from the law, we're not under it, and he goes through all the reasons why why that's the case, what the law was really for, and you know, we'll be seeing that largely in, in the next talk. Um, and in, in Romans 6, and uh, I'll start reading from verse 15, um, he says this, uh, verse 14 is our base verse, you're not under law but under grace, and then he goes on to say, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then in verse 18 he says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So there we're seeing Paul knocking on the head very much any idea of license, that being under grace means you can do what you like. So let's define license or antinomianism as the belief or teaching that maintains that because we're under grace and not law, therefore it's okay if you continue in sin and don't turn from it. And it says that you don't have to obey the teaching of the Bible, it's not really that important, probably best if you did, but it doesn't matter if you don't. And so they say you don't have to submit to the teaching of the Bible even in regards to the new covenant of grace. So then, defining our two false teachings just for the time being, legalism is when you mix the rules and requirements of the mosaic old covenant or anything else with the new covenant. That's error one. Error two is when you disregard the rules and requirements of even the New Covenant. Now, before we can go any further, um, we're really into covenants here. And what we've got to do is to understand exactly what the Bible means when it talks about a covenant. 
Because the point is, God covenants with man, okay? So we've got to understand exactly what a covenant is when the Bible talks about it, okay? Now then, firstly, we've got to see that a covenant is a testament. Um, as far as the Bible is concerned, the two are the same. Interchangeable words for the same thing, alright? Um, and the, the, there's only one word in the Greek, alright? Um, and it can be translated into English equally by covenant or testament. So, what we've got here is, as far as the Bible is concerned, the Old Testament is the Old Covenant, and the New Testament is the New Covenant. Uh, they're exactly the same, alright? So, that's the first things. Covenant and Testament in the Bible are interchangeable words, okay? Now then, secondly, and uh, we're going to have to get a little bit technical here, alright? Uh, and the problem here is because the Bible translates into English, alright? So, so we've got a bit of work to do here, alright? Now, I've already told you that there's only one word in the Greek, and in the English it gets translated covenant or testament, okay? Um, and the Greek word is diatheke. So, in the Greek, you don't have covenant or testament, you've only got diatheke, one word. So, we've got to understand what the Greek word means, alright? And the primary meaning of diatheke is the disposing of property or, or something to somebody either by a will or as a gift, alright? So, you know, I mean, the point is, in the Greek, diatheke means the passing on of something which is yours to give to someone else. It represents the idea of a gift, um, or making a will. And of course, if you make a will, when you die, you give what is yours to someone else, alright? Um, but what we've got to do now is, is to highlight a difference in meaning between the Greek word diatheke and our English words covenant and testament. All right. Now let's do the, the English first because we've got to sort out the technical differences between a covenant and a testament as far as English goes. Now. A covenant comes from a Latin word, and it comes from the word convenir. Now, <coughs> another word that we get from this is to convene, and it means to come together. Alright? So, covenant in English comes from a Latin word which means to come together. And it represents a mutual undertaking or agreement between two or more parties. And what happens, these people come together and each party binds themselves to each other to fulfil their obligations of whatever the agreement is. So, 
what it is in effect a covenant in English represents primarily a contract a legally binding agreement and in the English a covenant is just that a legally binding agreement between two or more parties now that is the primary meaning in English of a covenant but our English word covenant also has a secondary meaning of a promised gift in the way that you can covenant to Oxfam or something you simply say I am going to give to here and a covenant is arranged so covenant in English primarily means a contract between two or more parties but secondarily can simply mean the bequeathing of a gift all right a covenant to charity for example now then the English word testament which is slightly different all right comes from the Latin word testari and that means quite simply to make a will it also means to be a witness but I mean the point is even if you make a will you're witnessing to what you want done with your stuff when you die and so a testament primarily means the making of a will and of course the whole point about a will is that you are stating what you want to give away and to whom all right so then let's let's try and uh, <coughs> and sort this out a bit okay our English word covenant primarily means a contract between different parties where each party has obligations towards it all right um, you know like for instance car insurance I pay the premiums it's a contract I pay the premiums uh, I tell them the truth about my car and my age etc etc and their part of the bargain is that if someone drives into me they pay for my car you see now that is a binding contract and that is a covenant in its primary sense of the word but this English word also secondarily can simply mean the making of a gift and if you covenant money what you're doing is giving it away alright but when we come to testament testament only has one meaning and its one meaning is the secondary meaning of a covenant in the sense that it means the making of a gift upon death or whatever um, and in fact uh, in the last few years uh, the law has changed um, in regards to wills and uh, if I was to give uh, what I had, you know, I mean, so I had loads and loads of money or something like that and of course if when I die it gets passed on it gets taxed anything above £150,000 gets taxed but now the law has changed and if you um, start to give away what you've got before you die then it's not 
liable for tax. And so the point is, a testament is purely giving something away. It's a pledge to make a gift to someone. And that is the secondary meaning of the English word covenant. And of course, here is the point. A covenant, in its primary sense of the word, is a mutually binding contract. There are conditions which each party has to fulfil. However, a testament is a gift and no conditions. It's simply down to the party who makes it. The party who receives it simply takes it. But it primarily involves the giver. It's purely dependent on the party who is saying, I'm going to give this. All right. So that's defining the English words in regards to covenant and testament. All right. So then we've got a covenant, primarily a binding agreement between parties, and with conditions that each has to fulfil. But a covenant can secondarily simply mean a gift, making a gift. And that involves only the party who's doing the giving. All right. The party to whom the gift is made simply receives it and accepts it. All right. Whereas a testament in English is solely the secondary meaning of a covenant. And it means only and solely a gift that is made in respect of the death of the party who has promised it. So the point is a testament simply means the bequeathing of a gift to someone. Now the reason therefore that whereas there's just one Greek word, diatheke, the reason that in the Bible in English that can be translated into either covenant or testament is that it itself has two meanings, all right. Um, and diatheke, its primary and secondary meaning, include both the meanings of covenant and testament, all right. Now, we've already seen that diatheke, primarily, its main meaning is simply that it signifies the disposing of property or something like that to somebody by a will or as a gift. So primarily diatheke means the making of a gift. It's um, a covenant in the sense of a covenant to charity. But its secondary meaning is the same as the primary meaning of our English word covenant which means a binding agreement between parties all right so in effect if we take the word a covenant in english it primarily means a binding contract now that is the secondary meaning of the greek word diatheke covenant in english secondarily means making a gift that is the primary meaning of the word diatheke. But in English, a testament is purely the making of a gift to somebody. 
And that is the secondary meaning of the English word covenant and the primary meaning of the Greek word diatheke. All right. Therefore, what we've got so far is because obviously we're looking at covenants in the Bible that God makes with man. Therefore, diatheke, a covenant, as far as the Bible is concerned, is a covenant stroke testament which signifies an obligation undertaken by a single party and which doesn't in any way depend on the action of third parties i.e. if I said this belongs to me and I am going to give it to you I'm making a promise and that promise is a covenant but it's something that depends purely on me as the person who is making the offer of the gift so primarily a covenant stroke testament in the Bible is more often than not as we're going to see is the case is simply a promise made by one person to another a covenant is simply a free gift that depends solely on the word of the person who has said they're going to make it it's a promise however in the Bible this doesn't mean that um, that it doesn't include within its scope the idea of contracts between parties in a secondary way okay because it does and we're going to see that even between God and man um, but what we've got basically is that a covenant biblically is more often than not simply a promise that doesn't in any way depend on conditions being fulfilled before the promise is kept it is something that depends solely on the one who has made the covenant in the first place right so what we've got to move on to now is we've got to ask what were the covenants that were used and well known in the ancient world you know in Bible times and covenants in the ancient world took three distinct forms there were three different types of covenant in the ancient world and in the time of the Bible and we're going to look at each one and the main thing that we're going to be looking for is that we're asking which ones are conditional and which ones aren't i.e. which ones would come under the category of a covenant in the primary sense of the English word a contract between parties and which ones would come in the category of a testament in the sense of simply a gift being made so conditional or unconditional that is the key that we're going to be looking for now the commonest type of covenant in the ancient world um, was one which was called the parity covenant and um, parity means equal now 
it was called this because it was quite simply a covenant that was made between equals. Now this is going to be important because remember the ancient world was all down to kings and subjects and uh, you know there wasn't much equality in the ancient world. So a parity one was simply a covenant made between equals. Um, it was either a contract uh, such as we have today in regards to business, uh, insurance policies or whatever. Um, you know like for instance uh, a farmer might contract with a sheep buyer, you know, that, that, that the farmer will sell so many sheep for sh so many shekels or whatever. A covenant, simply a business contract, alright? Uh, and it was between equals because of course they're on a par. You know, I mean the person who, uh, not, not, not grows the sheep, but the person who rears the sheep um, isn't inferior to the bloke who then buys them and sells them on. So it's a contract between equals. Um, also, um, parity covenants played a part in the ancient world um, in the sense that they were used to bind parties to mutual friendship and respect for each other. You know, so that, I mean, for instance, you might have had, um, you know, I mean, this could happen between two countries, or it could happen to two families, you know, maybe you've been at war, there'd been a feud or something like that, um, or that sort of like you've got a new neighbour, you know, and you had your plot of land with your wife and your hems knows how many sons and their wives and grandchildren, so you had your little army, alright, and then a new neighbour moves in and he's got his little army, and you think, oh goodness, now it's not in our interest, is it, to start fighting here. So what they did um, is that they made a covenant of friendship with each other, literally a peace treaty in advance, alright? Um, and in covenants like this, the participants referred to each other as brothers, because it was a parity thing. They were completely equal. But the main point is, covenants such as this parity were conditional. It simply meant that you laid out the terms and you had to fulfill your conditions and the other person had to fulfill theirs. You know, like, I won't start a war with you, but you mustn't start a war with me, you see. Each had conditions to fulfill. Uh, to fulfill. Or, for instance, the farmer says, I'm going to provide you with 20 sheep now, when I do, you must have 30 shekels or whatever. And if, if the farmer turned up with 15 sheep, then the buyer would say, well, you know, sorry, you know, contract off, because that's not what I wanted. Or the farmer turns up with his 20 sheep, and the buyer says, sorry, I only got five shekels. And he says, well, I'm sorry, the deal's off then. The covenant is broken, all right? So a conditional covenant between equal parties. Um, we can actually see one or two of these in the Bible. If you go to Genesis chapter 21, um, Genesis chapter 21, and uh, if you find verse 22, and uh, we're going to see Abraham <coughs> uh, striking up a parity covenant with Abimelech, who was the king of Gerah, uh, so, uh, Genesis 21 and verse 22. At that time, Abimelech, 
and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now, swear to me, because you see, you know, sort of like these things would be, you'd bind yourself to them by an oath. Can you see what I mean? You know, so, a contra, uh, so a covenant, you, each party bound themselves to it by an oath. All right. Um, you know, when it talks about, you know, now swear to me, you know, this isn't talking about swearing in the sense of saying something naughty, you know, like bottom or something, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's simply saying you're going to take an oath that binds you into the covenant that I'm proposing. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Right. So a covenant like this didn't just bind if you like, the heads of the nations, you know, but it also bound their descendants as well, you know, sort of like through history. And he said, show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness that I have shown to you. And Abimelech had been good to Abraham. And he's saying, look, Abraham, let's make a covenant of this. We're friends, but let's officialize it, all right? And, uh, you know, sort of like, I haven't done you wrong, I'm not going to do you wrong, swear to me that you're going to deal with me kindly as I have with you. Abraham said, I swear it. Um, then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. You see, so something had gone a little bit wrong here, but they were keen to keep the friendship up. So it began with an oath that they swore to each other. Then something goes a bit wrong, but it wasn't Abimelech's fault. It wasn't Abraham's fault. But now they make a treaty and they actually enter into it in written form. So there you've got a parity covenant between uh, Abraham and Abimelech. And of course, they're equals. Abimelech is a king of his country, but of course Abraham, by now his family is growing and growing and growing, and he's quite a powerful guy himself. Uh, if you just go over to 1 Kings in chapter 5, and uh, just see another parity covenant made, a conditional one, each party as equals fulfills their condition uh, in order for the covenant to stand, and in 1 Kings chapter 5 <coughs> and verse 12, <coughs> And uh, just, just note that um, Hiram here is the king of Tyre. And uh, then it says, The Lord gave Solomon wisdom just as he had promised. There were peaceful relations between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. <clears throat> now here, they're both kings. Um, you know, but Solomon is the king over Israel at this time a tremendously powerful, you know, sort of people and at the time of Solomon Israel was, that, that is the most powerful they've ever been following the reign of David and uh, <coughs> Hiram of Tyre also a very powerful king um, but the point is he and Solomon were equals 
So therefore, this is a covenant of parity, and basically, they're, you know, they're saying to each other, you know, I'm going to remain at peace with you, and uh, you've got to agree to remain at peace with me. So, there you have the first type of a covenant in the ancient world, a parity one, a covenant between <coughs> equals be they kings, and the covenant is binding two nations together, or be it individuals, you know, kind of like, you know, sort of down at the marketplace, and, you know, sort of like bidding, oh, you know, I'll sell you 12 lambs for, you know, sort of 28 shekels or whatever, and the buyer says, right, done, it's a deal, all right. So, a covenants of parity between equals, and they are conditional, and that's the thing to notice. The covenants can only remain in place as long as both sides keep the conditions which are incumbent upon them. Now then, the second type of covenant, common in the ancient world, is slightly different. And it was one called the suzerain vassal covenant a suzerain vassal. Now, <clears throat> I'll explain these terms. Um, it was very common in the ancient world for um, nations which were tremendously powerful to invade and conquer nations which weren't as powerful as they were. But the way that they liked to do it is, I mean, sometimes Nation A would invade Nation B, and Nation B would just vanish. They'd annihilate them. Um, but very often, it didn't work like that. And you got nations like Greece, uh, you got Rome, you had Chaldea. And what those nations liked to do is virtually they were out to conquer the world. And so they didn't plan to annihilate all the nations around them. What they wanted to do was to govern them from on high, so they got all the taxes, etc., etc. And what they would do when they invaded is that the nation, the inferior one, very often that nation would be allowed to keep its own king. So that the nation had been invaded by a more powerful one and were ruled, as it were, from afar by this really powerful king, all right? And that really powerful king was known as the suzerain, all right? The ruler, the suzerain. Whereas the king of the little tin pot country that had been invaded, he could still be king in his own country, he could still rule it, but the point was he could only do so within the limits that the greater king imposed on him. And the king of the nation who was being ruled by the greater king was known as the vassal king. Um, at the time of Jesus, all right, Herod was the king of the Jews. So Israel had self-rule to a certain extent. But they were still occupied by Rome and Rome was ruled by Caesar. Now, at the time of Jesus, Israel was in a suzerain vassal covenant with Rome. 
Caesar was the suzerain, the greater power, and Herod was the vassal, the lesser power. And the way it worked is that the great king, the superior king, claimed absolute sovereignty over this vassal nation, all right? And he demanded from that nation total loyalty and service. In return, as the suzerain king, he pledged protection of the vassal king's realm and dynasty, conditional upon the vassal king remaining loyal to him. All right. So the point is, um, you know, that sort of like, you know, say I was a king of a nation, all right, and then along comes this mighty nation, far more powerful than me, their king is far more powerful than I am because it's a bigger nation, stronger army. So in they march. Well, they've got two alternatives. They can wipe you out, annihilate you, all right? But often what they were doing is they simply wanted to occupy you, to make your country part of their kingdom or empire, like the Roman Empire took in loads and loads of countries. Now, they would say, you can stay king, and as long as you stay king, we'll protect you and you'll be safe. But you are the vassal, and our king is the suzerain. And here are the conditions that you've got to fulfill. You've got to be loyal to him, you've got to obey all his laws, you mustn't rebel against him. Now, if you stay faithful to him, you will be part of his empire, he will protect you, all right? You've got to pay your taxes, you've got to do this, that, but if you remain faithful, you'll be protected by his greater power. However, if, as the vassal, you rebel against him, then he will march in with his army and he will destroy you, all right? So the point is, the vassal king in a covenant like this was protected by the greater king, but only as far as he was obedient and faithful to him, all right? So the point is, conditions were attached. If you fulfilled them, you were all right. If you went against them and the covenant got broken, then that brought upon you the wrath of the suzerain. Now, in the covenant of parity, we saw it was between equals and they called each other brothers. But the suzerain vassal is a covenant not between equals. It's a covenant between a greater power and a lesser power. And in that setup, the vassal and the suzerain, they didn't call each other brother, but the vassal king was referred to a servant or son, whereas the suzerain king of the greater power, he was referred to by the vassal as lord or father. So it wasn't a parity, a covenant at all. Now, um, if you go to Joshua chapter 9, let's see um, the occurrence of a suzerain vassal covenant in the Bible and in Joshua chapter 9. Now, <clears throat> the point at which uh, this occurrence occurs 
is when Joshua is leading Israel into Canaan. Now, God has commanded them that as they take the land, they are to destroy, annihilate all the nations in there. Which is another way of saying Israel had been forbidden by God to make covenants with the people in Canaan. They weren't to rule them, mustn't be suzerain vassal, they were to destroy them completely. Now then, what we're going to see here, Joshua chapter 9, uh, is an example of a suzerain vassal covenant, but we're also going to be seeing Joshua being tricked, and you'll see why. <coughs> Let's read from verse 1. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, uh, you know, like Jericho and Ai being destroyed by Israel, um, those in the hill country, in the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Great Sea, as far as Lebanon, blah, 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 they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon, so here's one nation, all right, they think, no, I think of a better way of doing this than fighting them. When the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. <clears throat> then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, or the Gibeonites, I mean, sort of different, you know, names. Uh, they said, but perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? Now, of course, what Joshua is saying here, look, if you live here in Canaan, I can't make a treaty with you. There's going to be no suzerain vassal. God, the commander of our army, has told us to destroy you. We are your servants, they said to Joshua. So that makes it clear they're proposing a suzerain vassal thing. They're saying, we'll be the vassals, we'll be your servants, spare us, all right. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? Because Joshua, he's got to find out if they're from the land of Canaan, he's got to destroy them, not make a covenant. They answered, your servants have come from a very different country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that, he had did, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, blah, blah, blah. And our elders and all those living in our country said, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. Alright? So, here they're telling a lie. They are Canaanites. But they have got more intelligence than the others, you know, than, than to think that they can destroy Israel. They know they can't. They realise that God is with Israel and that's it, we're dead. So rather than go and fight with them because they'd known that they'd, you know, they'd lose, they say, what we're going to do is we're going to pretend that we're from a far country 
And then we're going to say, we want to be in a suzerain vassal covenant with you. You be the suzerain, we shall be the vassal, alright? Now, what happens is that Joshua believes them, he's taken in. And so he makes the covenant with them, alright? Uh, now, obviously, when he realises that he's been conned, the point is he's made his pledge. He's given his word. And so these people, and you can't help but admire them, they actually survive and they become slaves to Israel. So there is an example of a suzerain vassal a covenant in the Bible being struck between one people, albeit, you know, pretending that they're a different you know, sort of people entirely, but being struck up with Joshua and Israel, okay. Right, so then we've seen the covenant of parity between equals, a conditional one. The covenant stands only as long as both parties stick to their conditions. <coughs> and we've seen the suzerain vassal. Not a parity thing, because it's a greater power over a lesser power. And again, it's conditional. The treaty, the covenant, will only remain in force as long as the vassal, the lesser power, is fulfilling the conditions that have been imposed upon them by the greater power. And... <coughs> if they don't fulfil those terms, then what happens is rather than getting the blessings and safety, the covering, if you like, of the suzerain, what they get instead is his wrath and judgement comes upon him. Right, now there's only one type of covenant in the ancient world left. And this one is completely different from the other two. And it is called the Royal Grant Covenant. Now then, <clears throat> this was a covenant that could only be made by a king, hence the Royal Grant a Covenant. And what it was, it, it, it was often land, sort of land, alright, but what would happen is a king obviously who owned loads and loads and loads of things, well in fact he owned the whole land really, didn't he? What he could do is that he could grant, be it land or something else, a high position or whatever, he could grant something to one of his subjects, be it for faithful or exceptional service or something like that. And what we've got here is that a king, for whatever reason, decides to grant something to one of his subjects. Now, whatever it was, given that it was part of a royal grant, it was a covenant that could not be broken. This grant was perpetual and unconditional. So the point was, the king said, I give this to you, and whatever it was that he gave, the person receiving it did nothing, you know, in order to get it. It wasn't conditions they had to fulfil. It was given simply by the will of the king, the greatest power in the land. It was given simply because the king wanted to, and it was given in perpetuity. It could not be taken back.
So a covenant, which is royal grant, is when the king, the highest authority, gave you something and therefore you got it. It was as simple as that. And there were no conditions attached. It depended purely on the will of the king. Uh, just, just go to 1 Samuel 8 and, and, and let's just see a, a, an example um, of a royal grant, a covenant um, in regards to sort of like a human king. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and if you find verse 10. Um, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Now, Israel wanted a king. God didn't really want to give them one, but, you know, sort of they wanted one, so they got it. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front some he will assign to be commanders, blah, blah, blah. Others will make weapons of war. Uh, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooked, you know, and cooks, blah, blah, blah. And down to verse 15, it says he will take a tenth of your grain, etc., etc. So what God is saying to the people, look, if you really want a king, you'll have one, I'll give you one, but this is what it means, the king is going to rule you and he will have the power to enlist your sons in his army and enlist your daughters in his, you know, sort of like kitchens and, you know, and so he's saying if you want a king, you're going to get a man with the authority to do this. Now, if you go over to um, chapter 27, still in regards to the same, same thing, uh, Chapter 27 and verse 5 to 6. Um, and of course the point about the verses we just read is that because everything in the country was the king's to take, therefore anything was his to give as well by way of royal grant. Now in chapter 26, and, and we'll read verse 5 to 6, alright. Um, <clears throat> now this is where David... Um, has, has become friends with Achish, who was the king of Gath. Now, look what happens here. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favour in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. A royal grant. Here, Achish gives David one of, you know, sort of like, the cities. And it's in perpetuity, because from that time onwards, it belonged to Israel, because David was an Israelite, you see. So, that was uh, 1 Samuel 27 and verse 5 to 6. So there you've got a royal grant. Achish makes a covenant with David, but it's royal grant, he gives him a city. And once he does, that city is David's forever. So, <clears throat> what we've got here in the ancient world are the covenants of three types. We have firstly, alright, the parity covenant. And this is a two-sided one between human parties a covenant where each party equally, 
because it's parity, and voluntarily accepts the terms of the agreement. All right? So a covenant between equals, that is, a conditional one. And this is the primary meaning of the English word covenant, all right? And the secondary meaning of the Greek word diatheke, a covenant of parity, a conditional covenant between equal parties. Now, the second one we saw, the suzerain vassal covenant, was a one-sided covenant that is imposed. There's no choice in this. It is imposed on you by a superior power. But the covenant, you didn't ask for it, it just plops itself in your lap because you get invaded by, you know, the greater power. So the covenant, it just appears, it comes to you, but it has conditions that you must meet. So you, as the lesser party, have got conditions that you must fulfil in the covenant. Now, if you do fulfil them, you're going to be okay, even though your freedom is curtailed because you're being ruled from afar. Nevertheless, if you keep the conditions of the covenant, you'll be okay. But if you didn't keep the conditions of a suzerain, suzerain vassal um, a covenant, then you, as the vassal, the inferior power, was in deep trouble. Break the covenant, the covenant was your protection. So if you broke it, then the suzerain sends in his army and you're annihilated. So that is the second type of covenant in the ancient world. And of course, you don't really get this, you know, sort of like today, do you? Not, not too much of it in the world today. And then thirdly, <coughs> we saw the Royal Grant Covenant. And this is a covenant made by a superior power, and it's a covenant that lays obligations on no one but himself. The king decides to give something, and that's all there is to it. It is literally a promise, a royal grant covenant is an unconditional promise made by the sovereign king. And this, the royal grant covenant, is the main emphasis of the Greek word diatheke and what the English word testament primarily means, a royal grant a covenant. Now the thing is, types one and two, the parity, and the suzerain vassal, covenants which are conditional. Conditions have to be fulfilled for the covenant to be kept in play. But type three, the royal grant, is unconditional. It's a covenant with no conditions attached at all, i.e. it will happen regardless of what anyone else does or doesn't do, because it depends only on the power of the king to be able to do it. It is, in effect, an unconditional promise, and therefore a promise which, in order for it to be fulfilled, is dependent solely on the integrity and the power of the king. So, they, there are the three types of 
a covenant in the ancient world during Bible times. Now, our interest here in regards to it is simply because we're going to be looking at covenants that God has made with man. And so what we've got to do is we've got to look at the covenants in the Bible that God has made with mankind and we've got to find out what type they are. Are they parity covenants? Are they suzerain vassal ones? Or are they royal grant covenants? I.e., when God makes covenants with man, does he make conditional ones that depend partly on you? Or does he make un conditional ones which depend only on him and we've got to go through them and see what type they are now firstly as soon as we start dealing with God making a covenants with man immediately we throw out covenant type one a parity covenant we throw that out God does not make, never has, never will make a parity covenant with man why? well because God is not equal with man so that one we throw out completely, it would be a nonsense, alright? So forget parity covenants from this point onwards. Throw them away, they're nothing to do whatsoever with covenants when God makes them, because God has no equal, alright? So then, <coughs> let's go now, we're going to, in this series, we're concerned with the six major covenants in the Bible that God has made with man. There are six of them. And tonight we're going to go through the first four. Alright? And uh, what we're going to be asking is what type of covenants are they? Now then, if you go <coughs> to Genesis and if you find chapter 3, we're going to look at the first of the major covenants that God made with man. And uh, find Genesis 3, and this one uh, is referred to, is called the Edenic Covenant. The Edenic Covenant. The reason being, it's the first covenant that God makes with man, and he makes it when Adam and Eve are still in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, it's referred to as the Edenic Covenant. Now then, Genesis chapter 3, and we want verse 14 and verse 15. And this is God's judgment on the serpent, whom Satan used uh, to tempt Adam and Eve into sin. Alright, now listen to this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now what we have here is a declaration from God to Satan, or to the serpent, whom Satan used, that the offspring of the woman will eventually crush the head of the serpent. And what we have here 
is a promise made by God that what Satan had done in the Garden of Eden would one day be undone by the Lord himself. Alright? And that this covenant, sorry, and that what Satan had done in the Garden of Eden would be undone by one day the seed of the woman. So a, a human being, God, through a human being one day would undo the damage that Satan had done in the Garden of Eden. Alright, now then, the thing to notice, here we simply have a promise made by God. It's a statement of fact. I am going to do this. It is a promise which is unconditional. What we have here is simply God says, I'm going to undo the damage that you've done in the Garden of Eden, alright, and I'm going to do it through the seed of the woman, I'm going to do it through a human being. Here you have God making a royal grant covenant with mankind, Adam and Eve being at the moment the only ones there. He's saying, I'm going to undo the damage that has been done through sin coming into the world. So there you have covenant what number one, the Edenic covenant, and here it's simply royal grant. It's a promise that God makes. It's unconditional. No one else is, is, is said, you know, that you've got to do this, that, and the other, and I'll do this. It's a straight royal grant covenant. Now, go to Genesis chapter 9. The next major covenant in the Bible that God makes with man is called the Noachian covenant. And it's made, uh, it's called that because it's the covenant God made with Noah. And find Genesis chapter 9. <coughs> and first of all, we're going to read from verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark, I will establish my covenant with you. Now what is this covenant? Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. You see, because a royal grant covenant is in perpetuity. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Now here, God makes a covenant with Noah, but who else? All his descendants. And the point is, when Noah and his wife came out of the flood, the ark, they, along with their children, were the only people alive. We are the descendants of Noah. This is a covenant made with mankind the whole of mankind. And it's a covenant 
where God says, never again will the earth be destroyed by a worldwide flood. Now notice, there are no conditions attached to it at all. It is simply a statement of God's intent. He says, this is my covenant, I am making it. It is a straight, unconditional promise. It is a royal grant covenant. But at that point, just go back to verse 1, because we have got to just, um, just read verses 1 to 7. Because the fact that a royal grant covenant doesn't have conditions attached to it, that's one thing, but it doesn't mean that there aren't responsibilities that come with it. Once the covenant has been made, once, once you are the partaker of a royal grant a covenant, nevertheless, it's unconditional, it can't be broken, but there can still be responsibilities incumbent on you having received it. For instance, if the king gives you a town, he says, right, Royal Grant Covenant, this town is yours, all right? Um, I'll have Orlando, Lord, all right? Um, this town is yours. It's a gift. Nothing can take it away because the king gave it to you simply because he wanted to. But the point is you've now got a town to run, haven't you? So responsibilities come with it, but they're not conditions. But there are responsibilities in the covenant with Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Now then, notice these are not conditions of the covenant. God states the covenant quite unconditionally. And if you just go back into the last two verses of chapter 8, we can see that God actually begins to make the covenant before he talks about the responsibilities inherent in it. In uh, Genesis chapter 8 and the last two verses, verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, yeah, because this is, you know, Noah has made a sacrifice, and he said, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. That's you and me. Every inclination of our heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And indeed they haven't, have they? So the point is, there's the covenant, God states that unconditionally. But there are, however, responsibilities put on man. There are commands for him to obey, not as conditions for the covenant being in force, being kept in force, I'll prove that to you in one moment. But nevertheless, if you end up the recipients of a royal grant covenant, then there can be um, sort of responsibilities incumbent upon you as a result. And here, the responsibilities are these. God tells Noah, repopulate the earth. That, that's the fun one. 
Um, he says, eat meat. That's a fun one. Vegetarians, perhaps, can just uh, take note of that. You know, God says, eat meat. Okay. Uh, thirdly, man is forbidden to eat blood. Which means not only, you know, cook, you know I, I mean, it would be wrong to consume blood, whether you're drinking it or whether you're eating it, you know, say something in, 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 uh, sort of like black pudding, which is just congealed blood. But also it means that no meat is to be eaten if the meat is from the carcass of an animal that hasn't been bled. Now, what that means is... Um, that meat must have been bled, the carcass must have been drained of blood before we eat it, you know, and of course in the West all meat is prepared like that anyway because it would be dangerous if it wasn't. So there's, um, you know, sort of like man is forbidden there to eat blood or to eat uh, meat that hasn't been bled. And then fourthly, uh, responsibility for government is now placed upon him. Man is going to be responsible from this point onwards for keeping law and order and it was signified by the fact that God said right from now on murderers must be put to death by the state so national government is now incumbent upon mankind so here are commandments here are instructions to be kept and indeed on pain of judgment too because God will judge sin but they aren't the small print of the government they're not uh, sort of like conditions. God has said, I will never again destroy the earth, all right? These are not conditions which have to be kept in order for the covenant to stay in force. They are simply the responsibilities incumbent upon mankind, given that God has made the covenant with him. And I can prove that. All, all of these commands given to Noah, all right, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, capital punishment and blah, 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 all have been disobeyed at one point or the other in human history and, and all across the world somewhere you know they're being disobeyed by someone and yet the point is if they were conditions then if they were broken the covenant would be broken as well but the point is they've all been broken but the covenant is still in force how do i know that the earth hasn't yet been destroyed by a flood um the rainbow's still there Seed time and harvest are still coming, hot and cold, blah, blah, blah. It's a royal grant, a covenant, all right. And also, as we're going to see in a later talk, because these were given to Noah as a Gentile and apply to all his descendants, then as we're going to see in a later talk, this covenant of Noah is actually still binding on us as Christians, all right. So then, major covenant number two that God has made with man, the Noachian one, is um, also a royal grant covenant. Now then, number three, we've got to oh, sp speed up here. Uh, go to Genesis chapter 12, um, and this is called the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12 and 1 to 4 called the Abrahamic because God makes it with Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Uh, go over to chapter 15, where God just, you know, sort of like restates the covenant again. Um, and, uh, 
After this the word of the Lord came, do not be afraid Abraham, I'm your shield and your very great reward. And at this point Abraham gets upset that he hasn't got an heir and that. And um, in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Then he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens, count the stars if indeed you can, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Now the point is that here God restates uh, the covenant with him. As, as many as the stars are in the sky, that's how many your people are going to be. Now if you read on, I haven't got time to do it now, but if you read on, um, uh, sort of down to the end of verse at uh, the end of that chapter you'll see you know sort of like you know God kind of doing a sign of that covenant with him although we haven't actually got time to go into that now but the point is the covenant is made so basically what you've got here is that God makes a promise with Abraham that he would make a great nation of him and uh, it would be a great nation that will continue forever and that he would give this nation a land of its own. Now notice there were no conditions attached at all. It was just said, Abraham, this is what I am going to do for you. It was a straight, unconditional promise, a royal grant covenant. Now uh, if you just, just go over into chapter 17, um, in, in verses 1 to 8, we haven't got time to actually read them, uh, but in verses 1 to 8 you have God confirming all this to him and the covenant is confirmed um, and then from verse 9 to 14 you'll find that God then gives Abraham various instructions all about circumcision and being a people separated unto God but of course, but of course these weren't things that Abraham had to do or the people had to do in order for the uh, sort of like promise to stand. It wasn't conditions that needed to be fulfilled, but it was the responsibilities incumbent on them now as being God's people. So not a conditional thing, you know, that if Israel hadn't done this, um, they'd have stopped being God's chosen ones. Of course not, but simply responsibilities inherent in it. And of course, the point is, Israel have blown them all, but Israel is still God's people. That's, that's the point. The covenant couldn't be broken in any way at all, because it was a covenant that was pure royal grant. No conditions attached. Unconditional. Period. So, that's the third of the covenants we've seen in the Bible that God makes with man. Uh, the fourth major covenant in the Bible, if you go over to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel and chapter 7, and this is called the Davidic covenant. No prizes for guessing why. It's a covenant that God made with King David, the Davidic covenant. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, start reading from verse 8. Now this is uh, Nathan, a prophet, and he's got a message from God for David. Now here we have this. 
Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all the enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares uh, to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your fathers are over and you rest with your fathers, I, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And that's Solomon. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And what we have here is a royal grant covenant that God makes with King David. What is it? A promise. Your kingdom is going to last forever. No conditions of any kind. A straightforward, unconditional promise of God. So then, we have seen four of the major covenants in the Bible that God makes with man. And what we have seen thus far, all of them are royal grants. They come to pass regardless, because they only depend on God doing what he has to do. We saw the Edenic one. Jesus crushed Satan on the cross. It was fulfilled unconditionally. It didn't depend on anyone else doing anything. No one fulfilled their part of the bargain because there was no part of the bargain for anyone else to fulfill. God said he was going to do it and he did it. The covenant with Noah. Well, the earth hasn't been destroyed by a flood yet. And of course it never will be. Seed time and harvest, autumn, winter, all the seasons, they're still here. Fulfilled unconditionally. Because no one except God has got a part to play in it. The Abrahamic covenant. Abraham is the father of Israel. Israel are a great nation. The Messiah was a Jew. Israel did have a large part of the land. They've got a little bit now, and one day in the thousand-year reign of Christ, they're going to have all of it. Unconditionally fulfilled. Dependent on anyone else? No. Purely on God. Only the Lord himself has a part to play in it. No conditions for anyone else to fulfil at all. And then the Davidic um a covenant um, Messiah did come from David Jesus was from the tribe of Judah the line of the tribe of Judah and in the thousand year reign of Christ King David's reign is going to establish is going to be established as being eternal and so the point is that again the covenant with David fulfilled and where it hasn't been fulfilled it will be unconditionally by God no one else has got any part to play in it it's dependent solely on the edict of the king, royal grant covenants. So all of these fulfilled or will be unconditionally. They are royal grant covenants made by God dependent only on him, one, being prepared to keep his word, which he always is, he never breaks his word, he says that, and being able to keep his word. And of course God is able to do anything. With God nothing is impossible. So then, question. 
We have seen four of the six major covenants in the Bible that God makes with man. So far, all of them are royal grant covenants. The question is, does God only make royal grant covenants with mankind? The answer is no. We've got two covenants yet to go. The old covenant, as the Bible calls it, and the new covenant, as the Bible calls it. And one of them is not a royal grant covenant. One of them is a suzerain vassal covenant. And we will continue to see which one next time.